Welcome to Books on Air, the podcast that tells the story behind the book. It includes insights from authors about how they compose their work, what inspires them, and what they hope you'll take away from their book. Here's your host for this episode of Books on Air, Lorna Gladstone. Welcome again to Books on Air. We're very pleased to have as our guest today, Ed Schrama. He's written a book called A Boy's Life During World War II, A Survival Story. Absolutely fascinating. Just about the first few years of the war. And at that time, he was living with his family, obviously, um, in Holland, in a small to medium-sized town. And there is, in fact, something that you may wish to read also. This book is autobiographical, but it ends when um, Ed is still a child. And he picked up with a proper autobiography that goes beyond this. And you may want to purchase them both at the same time, because I think when you hear the story of being a very young child, you're going to get pulled in and want to know more. So, Ed... I'd like to ask you just as a couple of practical things at the beginning, what's your audience for this book? Is it children? Is it adults? How do you see it? I would say teenagers, but then I've given the book to people that were 80, 90 years old and they liked it. So I say everybody. Good enough. And from my experience of reading what I've read and talking to Ed, I would strongly recommend this. A lot of things happened during the years 1940 to 1945, throughout Europe. Uh, But a lot of things happened, especially to this little boy that Ed was at that time. And I've asked him to tell us several of the stories of what happened to him from a child's point of view, uh, because I think they tell us almost more than facts in a history book, or almost anything else that I've read, because you really feel what the little boy was experiencing. Ed, if you would, I'd like you to begin by talking about learning to count and what you did with that ability, learning to count. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, uh, I was obviously about that. I thought it was... In 1936, I got born, and when I was two years old, we had a small house, and uh, the only place really to keep my, my, have my mother keep her eye on me was to have me in a box. We didn't have a playpen. My, my brother made a big box for me and uh, keep me locked in there. That didn't work very well. My father was sick. I was screaming and yelling, trying to climb, climb out all day, and so she locked me in the front room. The, the front room had a window to the street, large window. And every morning I sat uh, on a chair, looking out of the window, looking at women on the, across the street, standing in line, arguing. I could hear them, I could hear them argue, I heard words about war and food and shortages. I didn't know what they were talking about, but I heard them talk about pretty loud. Uh, so that was, uh, my morning and basically the whole day I was in that front room. When I was four years old, my brother took me across and I met the man that sold hot water. That's why the women were standing in line buying hot water to laundry and stuff and cleaning windows, whatever. And I was introduced to him. His name was Jan. 
and uh, he was very nice to me. And I used to go as many times as I could. At four years old, I was allowed outside. I was not allowed to go on the street, on the road. I had to stay on the sidewalk. And my brother had built me a, white, a bike and I could bike around the block. I wasn't allowed to go anywhere, to go anywhere other than that. But I was uh, allowed to go walk, walk just on across the street and uh, talk to Jan. Well, when I was five, I was allowed to bike anywhere. I biked all over town. And one of the things that I saw every morning when I was outside was uh, the Germans coming by on the main road between Utrecht, my town, and Amsterdam with their trucks and tanks. So I, I had learned to count. My sister told me, uh, taught me how to count, and I count to 50 at that time. So I just happened to mention it to the man across the street in the hut in Jan, and he was very interested. And he asked me every day to go out there and tell him exactly what I had seen, how many things, where they were going. And by that time, I was already biking and following to the outside of town where they were going. Why did Jan want you to tell him that information? Well, I found out at the end of the war, uh, he had been killed. They picked him up in uh, 1944 and they uh, executed him. And then his, his wife came to the house afterward and told her, told us rather the family that I had given the numbers to Jan because they, he was part of the resistance. And, and, and that gave them an idea of where to go. They used to sabotage at night in the dark, but they obviously couldn't, couldn't do it unless they knew where the, the tanks were and the, the trucks were parked and how many there were. And, and that's the, the reason why he was so interested. It's fascinating. That's just an incredible story. Without knowing it, you were helping the resistance. Yeah, I didn't know. So in, um, in around 1942, and I'm going to jump a little bit because 42, 43, 44, um, these were all very important years. You also were going out at night mm -hmm, yeah. to do another activity. Yeah. What was that? Well, we were running out of food. And in the uh, middle of 1942, 43, we had basically no food left. And uh, we knew my brother, Will, he knew everything. And he knew that the, the food was still available if you can go to the farmers and could uh, barter with them. But you had to have money, uh, no money, rather gold or jewelry. That's all they would take by that time. And so the only idea that he had, and he told me to go, is to a rail yard that was close by and uh, get wool out of the uh, bearing boxes of the rail cars. What was wool used for? Well, that, that's what I'm going to try to, the, 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 I went there at night with my sled and well, he didn't tell me, he told me sort of, but my mother was able to knit sweat, sweaters with the short pieces of wool, eight inches long uh, and, and, and make sweaters out of them. And then they could take the sweaters to the farmers and barter with them. And what was that like for you to go out at night? It was, it was horrendous. I, mean, I was seven years old in a snowstorm. The weather was always bad in the winter. Rain, snow, whatever. And I go out with my sled and uh, go into this railroad, rail yard and break open those boxes and get the stuff out. It was very, very hard. 
How long do you think those trips lasted when you when you biked there? How long do you think you were outside? Three hours. Three hours and pulling the uh, those strips yeah. of yarn. And and uh, did you have a basket or a bag? I had a, yeah, I had, well, I had a long sled. I had a small sled. Oh, the sled, I, yes, of course. Yeah. And Bill had made me tools. You know, made screwdrivers with it. Bend them at the end, made a hook out of it. So it could cut behind in the back of that compartment and get the pieces of wool out. So. Do you don't? Do you have any idea of how long it took your mother to make one of those sweaters? Very fast. The first one was slow, but in two days she could hold the whole sweater. Okay, and that was. I think you mentioned to me that the sweaters were short, so she used the the the, the pieces were short and yeah. they were knotted on the inside. No, the pieces were short. Okay. Yeah, eight inches, six to eight inches. So I mean, I don't know how she did it, but she was, she was fantastic knitter. But, but and not only that, but it smelled horrendous. And, and Will washed it with soap that was made out of clay. You didn't have regular regular soap anymore. So it was that thing stank. It was itchy on the inside, but it was a very high quality wool, very heavy. So it was very good for cold weather, I'm assuming if you like the itch. <laughs> you, you also, uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, everyone was running out of fuel at that time also. What right. did they do for, for heating? I mean, it's Holland. It's not a little had And as yeah, you said, it snows. Only one, uh, one room, the living room was heated in the house, nothing else. The whole house was cold. And but we had a, a coal stove and people were burning wood and furniture and tires and things like that, but we couldn't use it in a coal stove. So Will sent me to a power generating station that was within, you know, close to where actually where I got the wool. But I did have to climb over a big 30 foot dike with my stuff. And tell us with, again how old you were at this time. I know seven, 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 eight, seven, eight. And, uh, and, and then find the, what, what happened is the people that do the boilers, clean the boilers out with rakes and pull that stuff out and, and they make piles of it and get rid of it. They're just garbage to them. But I had to dig into that and find the Coke. But the problem is there's also a thing called slag, which is when it, when it burns totally and it melts, it's very sharp. I had to get it out of my fingers. So it was no fun. There was no school during this time, was there? There was no, 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 there was no, no structure the of any. Arrested. Yeah, deported. Oh. Yeah, some for a while there were women, female teachers, but it lasted many times. I showed up in the morning at nine o'clock, eight o'clock, whatever the time was. Stood there for a half hour and go home. Nobody, no, nobody, other kids did the same thing. Did your brothers and sisters? You said that uh, your sister taught you how to count. Did your brothers and sisters teach you how to read or? Uh, did, my my, my Nettie sister, Nettie. she was the only one that was interested really. Yeah. And what did the family do when they weren't allowed to go out and there was nothing open? What was, no. what was my it? My mother, I used to go out and try to find some uh, stores that were open with Nettie, the two of them. But most of the time they went out and stood in line and then by the time they got in, there was nothing left. So the, finally, they gave up. You told me that there was a uh, a name uh, that was used to describe that period of time. Oh, the uh, hunger winter. The hunger winter. Mm -hmm. And how long did the hunter the hunger winter actually last? Well, probably six months. Six months. Till, 
until finally we were already, you know, the Germans capitulated. Then it was over. But it was pretty bad. I mean, at the end, I told you that we had, we had to eat the cat. We had nothing. You had to eat the cat. Yeah. And how long did it take for the town to sort of become restored? Well, what happened was there were there were a uh, families on the block that were uh, having a good time with the with the Nazis. They had parties with them and everything else. And everybody knew who they were, but we couldn't do anything about it. But when when the war was over, these people were immediately dragged out of the house. They, the women had their heads shaved. They put swastikas on them with tar, hot tar, and they stood on, on open, uh, you know, flatbeds. They got, you know, paraded through the street. Everybody's throwing crap at them and everything, you know. And I was standing on, on the side with Will. And when did food start uh, being available, available again and fuel and other basics? Well, uh, what happened was, yeah, the, the Allies started dropping food packets in the park, which was close by. And also in that open field that was on the other side of the road when I went to the rail cross. And so the problem was that the demo workshop was a small field and they did it on windy days. The parachutes came down on parachutes and these things just hit the road. These packets hit the road and blew open, exploded and and split peas and everything else were five feet off the wall. And bread and everything else was just flying around. That, that was the first time I had white bread in my life, actually. That was, you know, because every, the chocolate, too. A lot of chocolate in these packets. So they did it for a day or two, and then they finally started using trucks. That was it. But it took, it took a good six months to a year before it was relatively well restored. Okay. And uh, the idea that... It had gotten to the point where you had to eat the cat. I think mm-hmm. will give people a very clear picture of just how bad things have gotten. I thank you for being with us. This was an extraordinary interview. And uh, Ed's books are available on Amazon.com. The uh, book, uh, again, A Boy's Life During World War II, A Survival Story by Ed Schrammer is available from Amazon, both Kindle copies and paperback. And the publisher is called Book Baby. Ed, tell us uh, the name of your autobiography. Oh, I have it here. Good. Extractions from a Dormant Mind. Extractions from a Dormant Mind. I had never written anything. And just, you know, quickly, my, my two boys, I had three, but one died, so... And the two survivors would be after me for years telling me about the, you know, the war and their stories and things like that. And I didn't want to do it. Well, I finally caved in and in 2015 started doing this. Took a couple of courses in the, li- in the library and uh, took off. I wrote that and I wrote four more books. So actually, I'm working on number four. That's terrific, Ed. Thank you so much for joining us today. It really is an extraordinary story from one point of view and was a common story for hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was very tough for me in the beginning. I had nightmares when I dug this up from my mind. This is something that everybody should read. And if you've got teenagers, even if they say, no, I'm not interested in that, you should say, read it. 
Uh, yeah. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> well, nice meeting you. Nice talking to you. That's it for today for Books on Air. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.